Thank you, Ian Anderson, for being on Flute Unscripted. It is really a very big honor. Well, I'm sure you've done this more often than I have. It seems um, sometimes I find myself confronting other flute players, which is a very weird experience because uh, being in a rock band, you know, you don't really meet other flute players. And I guess you play the flute yourself, do you? I do. Yep, I've yeah, been playing for, so. for decades um, now. Well, it's it's a, it's an oddity, really, because I'd never. Th I mean, I'm a, I am a flute player. It's what I've done for fifty three yeah. years, but you know, compared to other flute players, I don't think that's the way that I uh, the way that I work. I write my own music. I come up with ideas, some of which I can play, some of which I have to learn to play because my ideas are maybe a little bit too advanced for my my ability or my technique. So it. Um, you know, I think of it as music. I don't think of myself primarily as a flute player. I'm a musician who happens to play, amongst other things, the flute, and that's what I'm right. best known as. But, um, you know, whenever I meet other flute players, it's a bit scary. I realise that they too <laughs> play that weird instrument. And yeah, make we have that usually, common bond. Usually much more uh, melodious sounds than I do. But um, I guess... What got you interested in picking it up in the first place? Because you were playing guitar before the flute. Yeah, I'm like, like, like uh, all of my peers back in the, in the mid-60s, everybody wanted to be a guitar player. You know, that, right. was, the, that was the sexy thing to do. And uh, I think probably from the age of 17 through 20, um, well, actually 19, 17 through 19, um, I was the guitar player. But I heard when I was, uh, um, I guess when I was 18 years old, I heard Eric Clapton, who had just joined John Mayles Blues Breakers at the time. And Clapton was, you know, a great example of a, a white English working class blues musician. There were a few <laughs> of them around. He was far and away the most accomplished. And that got me thinking that maybe I should think about an alternative to guitar, something that was um, not so commonplace. And it, it took me a, a few months before I finally got round to trading in my trusty Fender Stratocaster for a, another instrument and for no good reason. I mean, literally no good reason. I just looked around on the wall of the music store because he wouldn't give me cash. He said, you can part exchange it for something else. And so I part exchanged it for a, a sure Unidyne three microphone made in Chicago, Illinois. And, uh, and on the wall there was hanging a shiny flute. And I said, I'll have that without really thinking what I was going to do with it or how to play it or anything. And uh, I remember, I remember going off in the, the group van to do a gig and I had this this new not well actually I think it probably was new it was a very basic student model it was a Selma gold seal and um my pal Sir James Galway oddly it was his very first flute too a Selma gold seal flute and he hated his he thought it was the worst thing in the world and and uh, I rather liked mine except for one thing I couldn't play it I couldn't get a note out of the damn thing because I thought you yeah. was blowing as hard as I could into this hole at the top Classic. of the instrument and nothing came out except wheezing uh, geriatric sounds. Um, and, um, and somebody said to me, uh, what well, is a bit like 
blowing into the top of a bottle, you know, like blowing into the top of a, a Coke bottle. And right. you, can, you can get a noise. And I think it was some weeks or months later, I did manage to get a noise out of it, you know, a note. But it was, I, I got the flute, I think, in July, and it was December when I finally managed to play one or two notes. And um, it's, it's a, a testimony to the ergonomic excellence of uh, Theobald Boehm that he yeah. um, put the keys where they just naturally seemed to go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, without really trying too hard, you know, I managed to play, a, I think the first note I played was probably a G, followed by an E, followed by a tentative D, an A, which was easy, <laughs> a B, which was easy. And, you know, and I had the blues scale in the, in, uh, in E minor. Um, so Were you it, ever... Uh, and I could play. I could. I could then play. I could play the guitar solos I used to play. I could now play them on uh, the flute, all right. in one key. Yeah. So, so that just got me started. And uh, for about the next two or three weeks over Christmas, I started to work on a few ideas. And by the middle of January, I was at the Marquee Club, the famous uh, club in London that many of us uh, started off yep. in. And um, I was playing the flute and people were paying attention to me you know because it was a, an unusual thing to have a flute in a blues band and um so I got uh, I got noticed for being the only flute player in town right. at least as far as the the blues aficionados were concerned. After that did you have any interest in pursuing any sort of formal training or lessons with anyone or were you content with I've, I've never I've never had a flute lesson or any kind of a lesson in my well, life since I, I heard was your school, no. I heard your daughter uh picked up flute at some point Has well, she, she ever was yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she, she was doing flute at school yeah I don't know why probably because I told her it was it was easier than playing a cello or a violin so she opted for the flute and I I gave her a flute an old flute that I, yeah. one of my old stage flutes at this point I think it was an artly flute um made in Elkhart, Indiana, and uh, a typical American band, marching band instrument. It was robust, it was uh, fairly crudely made, but it was a little bit more enduring than the, than the rather fragile uh, Selma Gold Seal. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she, she was learning to play from the earliest lesson, you know, to, to, to read the musical stave. Mm -hmm play with the correct fingering and it was I offered to try and help her with something and she uh I think she played me a note of E and I said well you know you've got you've got your fingers on that key down there it doesn't need to be there and she said oh, well that's what it says in the book and I said no I don't worry about it <laughs> she said, no but it says so in the book you've got to have your little finger on that key and I, I have a, a damaged a bent little finger a congenital mm -hmm. defect so it's not easy for me to play the uh you know the the uh, the right hand fingering at the, mm. the, the lower end of the scale, and um, then she said, "That's what that's how you do it. You, you know, you 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 have to play that." So I I then went off to a, a tour. Actually, it was just a promotional tour in India. My first trip to India. The day after the Air India um, building bombing, mass, you know, big big uh, terrible terrorist attack, and so that I I was the only person in the hotel. Everybody had fled. And so I had all the journalists in Mumbai, um, or Bombay, as it was still called, um, who came to do the press uh, call interviews and things. 
And um, while I was there, because there was a fax machine in my bedroom, very strangely, I, I got someone in England to fax me <clears throat> the fingering chart for the flute. Hmm. And, uh, and I realized that, you know, at least half of everything I played was incorrect fingering. Yeah. You know, I was all, all, all everything I played in the third octave, I was just blowing harmonics without in any way the oh, cross fingering yeah. or techniques to get the best intonation. So it, um, it took me about, I suppose, about three months to really try and relearn everything that I played because I had to relearn all of my own music, but with right. correct fingering. And that, that's when you, your muscle memory is such that after. I mean, this was in the, this was in the probably about 1990. So I'd had 22 years of playing the flute incorrectly. It right. took a while some, to relearn. Some habits to, to break. Yeah, it, 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 did take, it did take a while. And, uh, and at the same time, I thought, I thought well, I'll, let's make it really difficult. I'll switch to playing an open hole flute as well. So for you. Yeah. Went, went through a tortuous three or four months trying to learn the like a rite of the, the, the open hole flute was great because I could then bend the notes. I exactly. could do those sort of slurring things that were again more reminiscent of uh, electric guitar playing. So sure. it um that's how it all came about. Which then kind of makes me curious about um if you've played on any of the Robert Dick head joints that are the Glossando head joints. Have you seen those? No. Uh, I've read about them. Yeah, yeah, it's another fascinating you know, development on the flute, some options. And he was inspired by guitar playing and electric guitar and the sliding sound. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's, it's great that, uh, I mean, I, I know his name and I've read some of his, uh, his work about um, using the flute to summon uh, unflutely and ungodly noises. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting, but yeah. I, I I think I would hate to go down in history as a guy who just just did weird stuff with the flute because nobody else did. But for the large largest part, it's of little use to you in the conventional flute repertoire yeah. and of little use to me as a player in a rock band, because most of his techniques involve things that you really have to be playing the instrument very sensitively and carefully to to, um, you know, produce um, uh I think probably the only useful thing, I suppose, would be so-called circular breathing, but it's not really circular breathing at all. It's just using using air you've stored up. You know, yep. it's not as if you're you're breathing it in, but it's, it's more like playing the bagpipes. Um, you've got to have the air stored somewhere, have a quick recharge of it. Uh, but um, a friend of mine. Uh, originally a student of James Galway is a chap called Andrea Griminelli. He he uses yeah. circular breathing a lot in certain passages of music. And uh, when I persuaded, because we'd done quite a few concerts together, and I persuaded him to put a microphone on the on the head joint of the flute and to use um, wireless so that he was free to walk around the stage with me. Yeah. You know, and he could, yep. uh, but of course, because he's uh, then has to grab a quick breath through the nose, um, it makes one hell of a noise into the I'm microphone. Sure. So it, yeah. it it was um, struck me as one of those things that was okay to do, e even if he was standing close to a, 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 an open microphone on stage, even if he didn't have the, the clip on mic on the head joint, you could still hear him doing that. as he grabbed a breath, you know, through the nose while he was still using his, you know, upper um, uh, airways to try and keep the note going. 
so it, it's uh, these things are of limited use sometimes you know i, I just think uh, uh in most cases it's the gaps between the notes that are as important as the notes you play yeah sure. it's, it's it's like looking into a sky if, if every day you just confront a cloudless sky it's just a sea of blue mm-hmm. i mean it's very pretty but it gets pretty boring pretty quickly and i'm a guy who likes the clouds I like to see the clouds and the gaps between them and the spaces. You know, to me, that's much more visually interesting. And I think the same thing about music. It's it's very important to have to have the spaces between the notes. That gives the notes a reason to be there. If you don't leave a space, if it's just blah, 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 all the way through, it just becomes you know just like a you know an angry bee gathering uh, you know gathering pollen that just uh, seems to be. It wears you out pretty quickly. So I, I think phrasing, spacing, you know, and some of the best music in the world, it, it has copious uh, places in the, you know, where you do have the, the opportunity to breathe, to, 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 that it becomes so much part of the music you play. So I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not really thinking that there's much that I need in the way of new techniques to play the flute. That would help me in my music. What you do, it, it might do in yes. some uh, in some context with some avant-garde or weird stuff. But um, you know, what who about listens with... to that? People like to play, <laughs> but who actually wants to listen to it? Come on. <laughs> uh, what uh, I mean, have you ever thought then of the materials of the flutes themselves and how that would change your sound or what what you are playing? I mean, I know that you stuck with a lot of senkyos and Powells and silver flutes kind of like the the standards the the old reliables um have you ever thought of branching out i mean there's there's gold flutes there's platinum flutes there's alloy there are so many different materials and, and alto flutes piccolos have you ever thought of branching out into these different yeah, I, I i have a, i have a piccolo i have an alto flute i i love the flute d'amour i have two ah. flutes d'amour fascinating um, which are um, they're not made right now yeah well they are, they uh, are. yeah here in the the states we don't altus altus make altus make one in uh, um and uh, sankyo make uh, make a, 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 a semitone lower a, 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 a flute d'amour in fact they made me one with uh, open holes and they couldn't test wow. it out in the factory because no one had big enough hands to be able yeah. to to play <laughs> with the with the open hole keys yeah but it, it does play fine it's a lovely flute but practically again on stage it's just sure i think i i think i played the flute d'amour on one occasion when i did a concert at the uh one of the london concert halls which w- was one of those big flute occasions just a zillion flute players and mm. orchestras and things and I, I was taken along to be the class clown i suppose to do something other than classical music and uh, i i played the flute d'amour with another well-known british flautist uh, played one one of his uh, compositions <clears throat> but um most of the time now i i leave that stuff at home I, i've quite often played uh, the uh, indian bamboo flutes of different mm. sizes and different keys and of course, the uh, the ubiquitous Irish tin whistle, um, yeah. again in you know some different keys because you can get them made, or even you still find them, I think, in some different keys. So things that that you blow into, whether it's uh, the 
the mouthpiece, the flageolet type of mouthpiece, like a tin whistle, or whether it's a, a transverse flute, like the Indian bamboo flute, the bansuri. It's, um, you know, it's, it's all stuff that I've done and I've used them in recordings. But uh, I'm a simple soul. I, I just prefer to take one flute with me, which is a concert flute, and it <laughs> gives me the, the range that is most useful within uh, the music I play. I mean, essentially, it's the same musical range as a violin. And so um, it's, it's an ideal solo instrument. The, the piccolo just it would be very unkind to the audience to play a piccolo through <laughs> no kidding yes you know, through a, i think that'd be more thousand watt pa system yeah. that, that would be you know a no. little, little unfriendly be a little much yeah 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 it'd certainly shock them um I, I, you were talking a little bit about griminelli and um having classical flutist friends uh, i know you are friends with griminelli and you wrote a piece um, called Griminelli's Lament, and you two have performed it together. So what is it like to uh, collaborate in kind of in this realm with classical flutists and, and work together with them? It's probably a little bit more scary for them than it is for me, because I don't care. <laughs> but they do. And they, they get a little nervous because they're out of their comfort zone, sometimes playing with a uh, you know, very strict tempo arrangements, sometimes different key signatures, different uh, um, time signatures rather, and different uh, um, different kind of phrasing. Syncopation is, is uh, very much to the fore in a lot of what I play. So they don't find it that easy. Um, but then I don't find it easy to play, you know, some Mozart flute concerto or something. I mean, for me to try and learn all that stuff is just you know tortuous it's um it's uh, not something that i feel i would either then when i began or now it's not going to help me in my musical career whatever remains of it to uh, to try to learn to play that and be you know frankly third rate i would just sure. not be that good so i would rather do my stuff and um, having other people sometimes play my stuff or even sing my stuff, I, I, I know it's quite hard for them. You know, to me, it's kind of easy because I'm the guy who wrote it. <laughs> it's in yeah. here and, it, and it's in here, too. So it's 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 uh, I don't I don't need music. I don't need to have a written musical score and work to that. I'm just it's it's in here. And I mean, Griminelli was um, I mean, I. Do you stay in touch with people when you work with them? Are you still close with Griminelli? He's kind of known for his close relationship with Pavarotti and uh, all of that operatic, operatic genre. Do you feel any connection to opera through him or what do you listen to in your spare time? Well, you know, Andrea is a, has a wide circle of acquaintances and, and friends and great uh, masters of their own art and you know Pavarotti was, was uh, certainly one of them and um, he and Andrea Griminelli that is is um, you know in some ways a, a restless soul you know he likes to look at other possibilities musically but I know he gets very nervous about it as as indeed you can understand if you're you step outside the comfort zone of what you know it um 
it's it's a little dangerous you know you 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 are likely to be criticized because you're perhaps not so sure of yourself in a different genre mm. and um you know and andre has done a lot of uh, a lot of film music in his life that uh, he's played uh, not just the classical repertoire but uh, um uh, some of the uh, you know classical music of i mean the not classical in the classical sense but classic you know great hollywood type music you know mm. um it's a uh, it's it's good that he does that and i good good for me that i stretch out a little bit and do things too but um yeah i think uh, i think we have to always recognize our limitations there are things that we can do that we can do well and things that we struggle with but you know it shouldn't all be easy sometimes i think you've got to push yourself see how far you can go but as I say it's less embarrassing for me because I just don't care if I play That's a wrong right. note it's a wrong yeah. note it's jazz you <laughs> but know. we all yeah exactly <laughs> as, um, the, the, the old adage if you play a wrong note in my kind of music play it again yeah four bars later and it becomes the right note <laughs> right. looks like it was on purpose so um the um yeah I, I mean I played with a lot of people in uh from uh well, particularly some of the great American jazz musicians mm -hmm. who've, uh, uh, I, I've played with quite a few of them from contemporary American jazz or jazz rock. And I mean, some incredibly great players and uh, I can't do what they do. Right. I can, you know, do, do some of it, but when it gets harmonically very complex, I don't know all those scales and all the things that those players learn to play when they're um, at, uh, uh, um, Berkeley School of Music in Boston or wherever they all seem to go to learn their, their craft. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's great playing that sort of stuff. But, you know, when it gets, there's a, there is a level beyond which I don't feel I need to go because repertoire wise, I've got this enormous amount of music that I've recorded over the years. In fact, I was just finishing a, a lyric, a book of my collected lyrics, and it's something like 360, 370 songs. Um, and uh, add to that quite a lot of instrumental music. So it's an enormous repertoire that I have of my own stuff uh, before I have to start worrying about um, Mozart. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder, I mean, I think you're, you're I mean, speaking with you, getting to know you, you're very humble. Do you realize the effect that, and the inspiration that you've had on a lot of flutists in particular um, when thinking of other things to do with the flute? And how do you feel about, how do you feel about that and having that role in what we do? Um, I mean, there's certainly a lot of actors as well that emulate you. I don't know if you've seen the Ron Burgundy Aqualung skit. And then there's a, a beatboxing flutist that uh, we know here called Greg Patillo, um, who's very inspired by you as well. So what's your take on all of that? Well, you know, I, I'm not the originator of the that, um way in which that I started off playing you know I, I, I um, when I played guitar I used to play guitar solos and do what was called scat singing you know you would sing along yep. roughly with what you were improvising so your brain your mouth your vocal cords and your fingers are all you know milliseconds apart in terms of thinking of what you're going to play next and then you do it, it mm -hmm. it's so fast it's just it's uh, and you're singing the note too you kind of know what's gonna where it's going to be you just before you play it 
and uh, or before you sing it. So that singing along and playing thing was something that I had already done as a teenager. And when I I borrowed a I once borrowed a saxophone, and uh, and I realised you could sing the, the the note as you blew into the, yeah. the saxophone mouthpiece. You could reinforce it and make it a really raucous, aggressive noise. And um, and when I started to play the flute, you know, in the first few days of playing the flute, I, I couldn't get a, a pure note, especially in the, the lower octave. And I would mm, sort of sing the note as I played it and it, it reinforced it and made it a bit bigger. And it, it helped me start off the note and produce it. So I, I was just kind of doing that automatically. And, and um, then in the, uh, the, the upper register of the flute, you know, you could uh, at least up to say the note of E in the third, octave it would be something I could just stretch to to sing those notes as well and make it really aggressive and more of a rock instrument and I, I think I, I must have been at the marquee probably played three or four times at the marquee club and an old friend of mine came to see us um, playing there and, and he said oh I've, I, you must come and listen to a record I just bought it's uh, um, by uh, an American jazz musician by the name of Roland Kirk and he's really plays saxophone well, three of them at the same time sometimes. <clears throat> but he also did one album uh, called I Talk for the Spirits, which is his flute album. And like many saxophone players, he kind of doubled flute because it's more or less the same fingering. Right. And, uh, and he employed that technique um, very um, successfully and in a very quirky and creative way. And uh, some, my, my friend said, come and listen to the record, you know, he, this guy, you know, he plays flute, he sounds like you, or you sound like him, whatever. <laughs> right, but that um, way. but it, it was entirely an independent discovery, you know, Roland Kirk right. had obviously been doing it for a while, but I only heard him in uh, somewhere around February or March of, um, of 1968. And um, one of the tunes on the record called Serenade to a Cuckoo stuck in my head. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll play that. I mean, I probably just heard it twice and picked up on the essence of it and um, made that into a, an instrumental that we played. And then I recorded in July of that year on our first album. So it, uh, it became a bit of a party piece early on, mm. just as the year afterwards, another flute party piece was um, was Bourret, Bach's Bourret, yep. um, done in a sort of syncopated jazz feel. Yes. And... Um, so that that became, you know, I suppose my way of playing. But of course, other people were going to pick up on that. And to this day, I, I guess lots of people do. I, I mean, I meet some other flute players who play in rock or pop music, and you know, they they, they can all sound like me. <laughs> um, so it, it's not that difficult to do. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, it's uh, it's facile. Um, you know, in my days at art college, you know, I was always warned that, you know, things that look very attractive, a pencil mark or a, a paintbrush mark that looked in itself just very attractive. And you could repeat that and use it. And it, it was, you know, it, it was uh, very appealing, but it was facile often. It didn't have substance. It, it didn't, uh, it, you were, the technique was more, um, more important perhaps than the content. And uh, so I think you, you, you've got to always put it in that, in that, that 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 level of importance has got to be on the the content of the music, the the, the traditions of 
of line, form, tone, color, rhythm, uh, all words which ap apply in the painterly arts too. And so for me, switching from the visual arts, painting and drawing to playing the flute, you know, the, the descriptions were all the same. It was all about line, form, tone, color, rhythm. Mm -hmm. um, it all became, uh, you could substitute those words and the kind of way that you would use them in a composition musically as opposed to a, a painterly composition the same sort of things apply sure. um, which of course explains why so many British rock musicians of the 60s and onwards did not go to music college they went to art school like me we all went to art school and we got bitten by the musical bug and the immediacy of music as opposed to the rather more uh, tutored scholarly thoughtful and time-consuming way of making True. something. Ah, but with uh, art, you have a tangible, right? You have a physical yeah, element I mean, with art that is, you can to. In music, it's fleeting. It's, it's gone. Yeah, it's in, in art, there is performance art where you yeah. can almost, you know, splashing paint around and, you know, doing stuff that's uh, where the performance is, is perhaps, again, more important than what it is you're painting. <laughs> but uh, music offers you that immediacy. You know, you, you sure. are alive in front of people. You, you have that uh, immediate response. And yeah. so it becomes quite seductive for people who grew up with drawing and painting to suddenly find music is bang, you know, you're right there. Are you, uh, are you missing the live performances right now and being out in large venues and arenas. Uh, yes, I've, okay. I've, I've had to. I've had to adjust. Like all musicians, sure. we're all we're all out of work. Yep. And um, it took fifty three years, but I am an unemployed musician now. And um, it's all very. You know, people say, "Oh, yeah, but you can still record things. You can still." But my my heart, in in all honesty, is not really in it because if I can't go out and perform live music, then I don't really feel. Um, I'm accomplishing much. I, I, in the last year, I played on quite a few records for other people who've asked me to be a guest on a, a track or an album or whatever. And I, I've done that a few times. So uh, that's a bit of an outlet. And um, mm -hmm. I've done a bit of work on some of my own recording and I have quite a lot to do during the next few weeks. But um, I've been saying that for the last three years that um, you know, I, must, I must finish this album. But the thing is, you know, when you're on tour, performing and it, 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 um, it, it's the it's the big reward and sitting in front of a microphone in a recording studio yeah, is uh, uh, somewhat sterile and yeah. missing that bit of performance magic you have to kind of use your imagination as if you were playing live and try to conjure up those uh, emotions and that performance skill yes. to uh, to try to be creative in a, a recording context. But uh, I, I don't find, I find it easier if I'm playing somebody else's music, then I'm mm -hmm. just concentrating on playing the right notes or improvising and producing something that is sympathetic to what I, what I think their song is about. But, um, you know, for my own, for my own purposes, I think I, I prefer really just to wait until such time whenever that may be that we yeah. can resume a degree of live performance but um, do you think that will be with the large numbers that you've seen before or, or maybe you're looking forward to some more intimate performances in smaller well, no intimate is absolutely the wrong thing because we're, we're talking well, about yeah, limited limited capacity so right. in fact if you're playing in a 2000 
capacity theater, typical concert hall or a you know a decent sized uh, performing arts kind of theater, then chances are we're only going to get be allowed to put fifty percent of the people in there um, to try and arrive at uh, you know, by by structuring the seating in terms of being pairs. Uh, and singles to a lesser extent, leaving right. spaces in between, behind and on either side. You know, you, you limit your capacity. I mean, I I worked this one out back in uh, back in April last year because uh, um, everything was locked down. There were no shows happening and no shows likely to happen. We thought for many months to come. As it turned out, it's even more months than than we yeah. originally thought. But uh, I, I, I took a couple of theatres, well-known theatres, one a, a London West End theatre in which, you know, plays, music and stuff happen. Another one was a, a, like a performing arts centre in another part of England uh, for which I could get the seating plan online. And I took their seating plan and I worked out uh, a spacing to try and create uh, a metre gap between people in a mixture mostly of pairs of seats, some threes, a very few fours, and a few ones, a few single seats. And I, I got to about 67% of the theater capacity that I thought it would be relatively safe to play in, uh, provided everybody was wearing a proper mask, not some silly t-shirt face covering, right. like a, what you would call an N95 mask, a proper, mm -hmm. A proper mask. Uh, hey, you have a. I, one, I mean, I read one, your letter to one, the one that looks like one that looks like this that really does give you a good ceiling. If you wear a yeah. decent, decent, uh, a decent mask, and you don't get too excited, you don't shout, you don't create more small aerosol droplets, then you know it would be getting relatively safe. But the big key to it is air exchange, as as we know. In fact, we've known this since. The studies were done back in 2003, 2008 with other uh, corona type viruses that um, small aerosol droplet transmission is the big scary one. And yeah. um, air conditioning as such is not necessarily the answer as those people who are currently holed up in the Holiday Inn in Melbourne are finding out that, <laughs> you know, the small aerosol droplets permeate the air conditioning into the corridors and people are picking up coronavirus and now the whole place they were there quarantined anyway now they're in total lockdown and melbourne just went into lockdown 24 hours ago again as a result and, and this is with the one of the new variants so it's a right. pretty scary situation yeah. and th that's that's what would happen in a theater right now you know with uh, any of the the South African variant or the so-called UK variant, the Kent variant, mm -hmm. which is becoming very prevalent around Europe. Yeah. Um, you know, these things spread so easily. And uh, right now, it would definitely not be safe to do an indoor concert, even to a 50% capacity, right. uh, unless you had really hospital standard filtration and an air exchange, meaning that, you know, that you would exchange all the air would be, would be, filtered down to say well below one micron um to be able like in an airplane a, a so-called hepa h-e-p-a yep. filtration then you know you, you could be reasonably secure uh, but it's uh, nothing is ever going to be totally safe and for me the big question mark is it's not just about me feeling safe when i'm on the stage I'm, I'm the, the one person in the band who can't wear a face mask. They, they could all wear a face mask and play the guitar or even sing right. through a face mask. 
la di 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 you know, it's, 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 there's not a big problem, but you cannot, you cannot, as you probably know, cannot play <laughs> the flute with a face mask on, yeah. or a saxophone, or an oboe, or, or a trumpet. So some of us actually, actually have to be um, naked on the stage <laughs> yeah. in the sense of exposing ourselves. And, and of course, if we're playing the flute, we tend yeah. to breathe primarily through our mouths. Um, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, you know, trying to grab breath through your nose is, it produces usually a lot more noise than, you know, versus yeah. it's, uh, it's a, no contest if you're working a, a close to a microphone. So um, it, it's kind of tricky. And I think that for me, feeling safe is one thing, but it's the knowledge that because I'm there and people have come to a concert, if one person should get sick and die with coronavirus as a result of coming that night, that's going to be on my, my shoulders and, uh, and weigh heavily on my heart yeah. uh, to, to, to find that out, as unfortunately I tend to do, because people will often write to me and say, oh, granddad went to your concert and had a heart attack and died. <laughs> I mean, joking aside, it does happen. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens not that often, but there are several people who have died at concerts that I've done. But, you know, I'm, I am less, uh, whilst I think it's a terrible tragedy, and of course I send my condolences and whatever to, if I, if I find out, you know, relatives and so on, but it, it does happen. It has happened. As long as I can remember, people have died at our concerts, usually drug overdoses, sometimes heart attacks from being, uh, you know, overweight or drinking too much or yep. whatever they might be doing that's, that's caused a heart attack. So I, I feel, you know, that's a bit of a risk that other people take if they go out and get go to a concert or they get right. overly excited. And um, yeah. it, um, but, you know, coronavirus, different deal. You could be, you could be, uh, a, a fit 60 year old and be sitting in the audience at one of our concerts and not even know perhaps that you had an underlying health condition that would make exactly. coronavirus a much more serious uh, proposition ending in hospitalization and perhaps death. And, yeah. you know, that's something I, I feel I have to carry that weight of uh, responsibility and trying to make sure things are as safe as possible for everybody. And I think that this year there is a little tiny chance, well not tiny, maybe it's a 50% chance that we will be able to play some outdoor seated concerts in Europe. Uh, I say seated because when people are sitting in designated seats that are spaced apart and wearing right. face masks, they will probably behave okay. Right. But if they're not seated, if it's a standing audience and they're free to move, they will all come and congregate at the front. Yep. Very unwisely. And they can't be trusted to, to, uh, to be sensible, especially if they've had a couple of drinks, you know. So yeah. I think uh, seated concerts are a possibility. And outdoors, you have the best air conditioning in the world for the most part, in the sense of there being a bit of a breeze and a, an air exchange anyway. So... It, well, you um, have a, a lot of may, ideas. That may happen. Yeah, you have a, clearly a lot of ideas on, on ways to move forward. You've shared this in a letter to the UK government, um, mm. and you've written to them about your concerns and ways to move forward. Are you feeling hopeful about the future or a little frustrated with the way things are moving in terms of government involvement? Well, it's not just our government, it's every government Everywhere. in every country yeah. that we well, might conceivably yeah. play with and uh, play in and they, they have to make those decisions and they'll be making the decisions probably 
you know, maybe the day before a concert, which happened to us in Finland last year. We flew to Finland in March. The, the, uh, the infection rates were about, I think, uh, something like 30 in, the, in, the, in, in Finland as a whole. And actually, most of them were not in Helsinki, where we were starting a tour. They were mostly in little villages and other places far away. So there are very few cases. But in a small country like Finland, 30 infections, the government panicked. And we, 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 when we were at Heathrow Airport in London to get on the plane, I checked. Everything was OK. We arrived at the other end, got off the plane, went to the hotel. And I got a phone call from the promoter saying... The government have just come out of a meeting this afternoon and they've decided to cancel all public performances and wow you know, and that was it it was over yeah. so um, our finland tour was cancelled literally the you know 24 hours before we should have been there doing sound check and uh, it, it that, that is obviously really bad because that you've you've got so many of the expenses you know i have to pay my band and the crew and the hotels and the flights and 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 no show yeah. So uh, no income. And, um, the, you know, the, these are the difficulties that you can only make a decision based on what's happening, you know, a week before or two weeks before, three weeks before you're going to have to uh, make some difficult and tough decisions. And, and we've had concert after concert last year was uh, uh, postponed and pushed into 2021. Now, pretty much everything in the first half of 2021 has now been pushed into 2022. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we still have a lot of concerts scheduled potentially to go ahead this year. But my my gut feeling is that few of them will be yeah, well, taking place cool. simply because it's not under my control. It's the governments of different countries saying, yes, you can have a concert, but with these restrictions, or we've just had a flare up of coronavirus cases in the city, everything's shut down again, you know, right. no public gatherings. And it, it's impossible to know really, and impossible to plan because as you can imagine planning a tour and booking venues and sound systems and lighting rigs and all the people and personnel involved and selling the tickets in advance you know all of this just creates a terrible mess to uh, to have to cope with when you're forced to postpone um, uh, yeah of course or cancel so yeah. uh, very hard for people to plan anything right now and i'm i'm a realist you know i don't talk about when the pandemic is over I don't talk about when we when we have tamed coronavirus and beaten it into the ground. It's not going to happen. It yeah. will not happen. Coronavirus is going to be here, endemic in the human population for the lifetimes of my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. It will be there, just like flu. And yeah. um, to compare it to flu is in some ways useful, but dangerous because, of course, coronavirus is rather more deadly than, exactly. than flu yeah. and far more likely to be spread. It is a very transmissible disease, especially these new variants, which seem to have a, uh, the ability to, to spread so much faster and perniciously than, uh, than the original uh, Wuhan strain of the virus. So yeah. I think uh, realistically, we have to accept that this is going to be the reality for from here on in. And uh, those of us who have traditionally earned our living by live performance are um, going to be facing an uncertain future, I think, yeah. frankly, for all of this year. And yeah. maybe next year it will be better. 
And by 2023, I would hope that with the degree to which successful vaccinations have been deployed worldwide, because of course yeah. travel is just happening all the time. And uh, you've really got to protect the world with with uh, vaccinations before you can protect yourself properly, because people yeah. will always be spreading it again. But I think, you know, medications to treat, uh, there'll be prophylactic medication that you will take. Um, actually, I, I do already um, come to think of it. Um, I don't have it with me, but I, I use a nasal I use a nasal spray made out of a seaweed extract, which is meant to stop you getting common flu or the common cold, mm. coats the inside of the, the nasal membranes. And uh, I mean, I use that all the time because I, I'm been subject to getting bronchial infections for many, many years. And so I use a nasal spray. I also have a nasal powder recently developed in Israel, which is a choo -choo 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 up mm. each nose. And that is supposedly gives you about three or four hours of very good protection against coronavirus infecting the nasal passages. You could still inhale it, of course, if you're a flute player on stage or a singer, you know, so it's a partial, it's a help. So the prophylactic treatments, which I think will end up being probably more likely to be nasal sprays or a one-shot dose, like the asthma inhaler, you know, It'd be that sort of a thing that will give mm -hmm. you a fighting chance of not uh, being given a, a a high viral load getting through your system. I mean, are you at all concerned? I mean, I know that you were um, diagnosed with COPD and are you at all concerned about uh, COVID having more of an effect on you and, and how has your yeah. diagnosis affected yeah, your thinking? Yeah, yes, I mean, statistically, my chances are a bit better now than they were last uh, March or April, but uh, yeah. back then, if I had got COVID, then the chances were somewhere around about one in five that I would die um, as a result. But now it's rather better than that. Yeah. It's, um, it's one in six. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's it's a bit. It, it is it is better because you know all the time treatment in hospital is getting better. So. Um, and I have had my first dose of a vaccine, so Good for you. Yeah. by next week right. I'll be getting a you know a bit of antibody protection, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but um, that's no cause for celebration. It's just you've got every tool in the book. Yeah. You know whether it's uh, nasal sprays, whether it's inhalers, whether it's uh, vaccination, um, face masks, um, keeping your distance. Because for me that's easy. I'm not a sociable guy anyway. I, I'm spend most of my time on tour, I'm alone in a hotel yeah. room. I, I eat alone. I don't like to be with other people. I, I find the worst restaurant in town because <laughs> it's empty. Yeah. You know, I, I look for the worst Asian restaurant I can find, you know, Indian or Chinese yeah. food, the one that nobody goes to because you, the, the, the hotel uh, front desk will tell you, if you go there, you'll get sick. You, you know, it's, it's <laughs> and then that's really don't, don't go there. It's a horrible restaurant. People come back and they, they're throwing up and being really ill. Don't go there. So, of course, that's where I go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the only person having lunch and, uh, and, uh, and I never get sick. Okay, I was, gonna, I was gonna ask if any of that ended poorly. No, I, I smile at the waiter. I check the menu carefully beforehand so that yeah. I can look him in the eye or her and order from memory. Yeah. Um, you know, Indian food and, and uh, straight away that impresses them because you're not reading it badly off a menu and right. you know, you actually know what you want and you remember the names and uh, 
So uh, I'm trying to make friends with the waiter and hopefully um, a little bit of that uh, welcome right. spreads into the kitchen scenario <laughs> where the where the chef uh, thinks, oh, yeah, apparently he's a nice yeah. guy. I'll make sure I'll make something good. <laughs> I'll make sure I wash my hands before I um, <laughs> touch the poppadoms or the nuns right. or whatever. But no, I, I'm fingers crossed. I've only I have only been sick once from eating in a bad restaurant. And uh, I got very ill wow. about literally about an hour later. I'm seriously ill. Um, I was fine by showtime, but, you know, it was a, a bad start to the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds rough. Uh, I, I want to just shift gears a little bit before we finish up here to just a couple more fun, lighthearted questions. Um, I know we went down that darker COVID road. So um, I guess uh, something that a lot of people don't get to experience that you do is hearing your song play on a radio when you're just out grocery shopping, doing something. So has there ever been like a, a strange place that you found yourself where a song came on the radio and you were surprised or a strange part of the world that you've been in um, where you heard your song playing? Well, if it was a strange part of the world, chances are it would be part of the world where I, I was there because we were you know, doing a concert, therefore there would be a degree of popularity to justify going there and hopefully playing to a decent number of people. So it wouldn't be a huge surprise, but I think um, I, I have heard my music played in an elevator, which is the point where you actually do rather question what you're doing. <laughs> It's this, yeah. you know, when it becomes elevator music you think right this is it's not a this high is point not, this is not an honorable no. profession no you know, I, I should i should have listened to my mother and been a doctor you know, um in fact i should have listened to my mother and been a doctor at least i'd have a job right now you know. <laughs> true but no i you know you do of course hear it and um it's uh, i i'm afraid i'm a bit like my son-in-law i i can't bear to hear myself in public you know i close my ears if i should i hear anything being played yeah. run away I, I i'm embarrassed by yeah. it. He, he's never seen himself uh, in any movie or tv series or anything he's ever done he's never watched even the wow. rushes he will wow. not watch anything he learns his lines does the part and literally that's it he cannot bear to watch himself act yeah, and there's quite a few actors who have that, that weird that. same yeah. sense, you know. But as a record producer, I have to listen to myself. Yeah. Um, till it's um, driving me nuts, you know, because yeah. I have to over and over and over listen to the music collectively and mixing and mastering music. You know, you probably hear it a thousand bet, times. Could you could you imagine the the other scenario of you just recording and never hearing it played back and just releasing it out into the world without uh, yeah, without. Well, I, I like to think that I would do it because it made me happy and I didn't really right. need an audience. I didn't need someone to warm to it, to, to give me feedback of a positive nature and make me feel good and valued. I like to think that I don't need that. But in reality, I suppose I do. I think most of us who are in the yeah. world of arts and entertainment, we do whether we admit it or not, we do thrive on um, approval. Yes. Sometimes we thrive also on confrontation um, because you have to remember that not everybody out there, even if they've paid for a ticket, 
especially if it's a multi-act festival context, then they're not your fans. A lot of people out there don't like you and you have to win them over. And if you go to a country or to a new place for the first time, then you have to win those people over in the first few minutes of your performance. And so it's confrontational, but you hope that the end result is you have got their approval and they're, you know, they're still in their seats at the end of the concert. <laughs> they didn't leave at half time, you know. Yeah. And um, so I, I guess, you know, this is, you've got to be realistic. But I think we all need that little bit of feeling of, uh, of um, acceptance. Validation. Doesn't have to be, they don't have to overdo it. They don't need to, you know, stand up and jump around and scream and whistle and hoot and jump in the air. I'm perfectly happy just to see a smile on the face and a, you know, that, 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 that's yeah. good for me. Yeah. But I'm a reserved person. I, I, don't, uh, I don't go much beyond just a polite applause. And I'm perfectly happy if that's what I get. I'm happier, actually, if, if they don't overdo it. When people go nuts, I think. It's the, uh, it's the beer talking. <laughs> <laughs> not, not necessarily uh, um, honest right. emotional approval. Sometimes right. people just overreact in all kinds of ways. So. Sure. I'm, I'm very happy with polite applause. Well, uh, here's your polite applause for me. You were great today. Thank you so much for your time and for carving out the time to chat with us. Uh, we really are very honored and really appreciative. So thanks for sharing. I'm going to share just one little thing that you did ask me this, and I didn't really get around to answering the question oh, yeah. about, about people um, trying to learn from me in, in some way in terms of what I do as a flute player and my I, I am not a teacher I never I can't I'm not interested in trying to teach people how to play the flute but but I do think it's very important to pass on to any young musician not just flute players and particularly younger musicians you know have a give it everything you've got but have a plan b and a plan c because realistically few are able to enter the world of professional music music, uh, and earn a good living for the rest of their lives. So, you know, if you invest perhaps five, six, seven, eight, nine years of your life into really working and learning your instrument, I think you've got to be realistic and have a backup plan. It shouldn't stop you giving it 100% of, of your effort when you're doing it, but don't, don't burn your bridges. Right. <clears throat> keep, keep, keep some options out there. And I think that's a good thing to always carry in your in your head is to accept that you may be disappointed and um that, that's, that's number one number two is try to throw away the written music for an hour every day toss it over your shoulder <laughs> and play a few notes play a few wrong notes because that will help you learn which ones are the right notes in terms of improvising and coming up with little tunes of your own doing whatever throw away the music and just try and play from here and from from here and don't be afraid of making a mess don't be afraid of the wrong notes or bad phrasing or bad playing don't be afraid of making the mistakes in in privacy in your own rehearsal room or private space then go go and make lots of mistakes and have fun because 
when you come back, when you then pick up the, the scattered music off the floor and put it back <laughs> on the music stand, you know, you will have learned a little bit of something about music in the meantime. And, and that little bit of something yeah. is about emotions and responses and perhaps technique too. So you can apply that to playing, you know, from the Dead Sea Scrolls <laughs> and perhaps uh, endow them with a little bit of greater substance as a result of being led off the leash you know yes. think of yourself as a playful puppy and your owner takes unclips the leash and says go go and and the joy of running around and going nuts you know that that's what you should always try and make a little space every day to play the flute that way and uh, i think it will it will be if nothing else it will be fun and um yeah. and music should also be about fun as well as discipline and uh, and the uh, the nail biting tremors and fear of upsetting your music teacher, or indeed a classical music audience sitting there with the right. critics in the front row, ready to write nasty things about you. You know, you have to cope with all of that stuff too. But you know, you deserve an hour off to go nuts like a playful puppy. That's perfect advice. Okay. Yeah, that was it. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Okay, good to talk to you. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Bye.